Well, after such a wonderful introduction, you feel like you want to close it down. <laughs> I'd like to take this privilege and uh, thank God so much for his grace and for his love. If it wasn't the love and the grace of God, we wouldn't have what to say, we wouldn't have a life to live, and we wouldn't be here anyway. But we are all testifying of his goodness, his mercy, his grace, and his love by our presence in this place. I'd like to take this privilege to also appreciate Pastor Barty for being such a great, great, lovely friend of mine. Me and Pastor Barty became one single person. Actually, we always refer to ourselves as one person in different skins because we are so connected to each other that every word, everything that we do, it's just alike. And we are born from different geographical locations, but we have the same origin in God. So we really thank God so much for that. And I'm privileged to really be in the New Direction Grace Church today. I'd like to take uh, the opportunity to also appreciate uh, uh, Helena for really such a wonderful comfort that she always accords to me whenever I'm in South Africa. She's such a wonderful, lovely lady. Thank you so much. Yeah, without taking any further time, I would like to appreciate Pastor Peter and the wife for really honoring us with the invitation to be here today. I know we cannot take it lightly and it's not for granted. There will be so many ministers on your sheet of list that you may well wish to really invite in here, but not everyone has the opportunity to really be welcomed in this place. So I can never take it for granted for all the church members and all those who are visiting for the first time. Thank you so much for that warm heart of welcoming us this morning. Yeah, I won't talk much about myself, but uh, I think a few things will be really necessary for somebody to know who is this young boy who is standing before us. My name is Gerard Walusimbi and uh, I've been in ministry for over a decade now. I began ministry when I was so young, and uh, it's following up with the grace of God that Pastor Bart has already pointed out to in my life. Ever since I was a child, I was this devoted young man to God, but who never knew the right direction. Actually, it gave me a wonderful uh, comfort looking at the name of the church, New Direction. So, in uh, my pursuit of really uh, loving God and looking up to God and everything, I was formerly a Catholic follower. So very devoted in there to the extent that by the time I converted to Christianity, actually I was on my journey to becoming a Catholic priest. And uh, as the church name goes, I received a new direction. So when I received a new direction, my earlier days in uh, Christianity, I was such a wonderful, devoted, I don't know how Catholics maneuver to actually produce that in almost every follower of theirs, to be so devoted and committed to whatever you are. 
And so I brought all my commitment, all my zeal, and all my determination when I converted to Christianity. And I landed in a wonderful legalistic church. Now, it was so pure in its law that it was amazing how we could not even think but only act like robots in there. It was so dangerous, but at the same time we were enjoying it because we knew no anything else other than that. So I remember during those days, you know, you are so much on fire, you are so zealous, you love everything about God, you have just come into contact with this encounter, and so your life is like, wow, I'm over another thing over again. And uh, so many practices that we used to get through. And I remember, I'll just mention a few that really were a bit challenging for me, but we had to do them. That was too much of fasting because we are told that you can never win the heart of God unless you demonstrate by your performance. So literally your works will earn you anything you need in life. Do you want to prosper? Then you have to do something that every other person cannot do. Do you want to be blessed? You have to do an extra thing that not everybody is actually able to do. So every time it was a performance-oriented goal in everything that we called belief. And this was so raining and it was really so much burning us out. But as life kept on going, I began to sense that there should be something better than what we are actually experiencing. Because I remember a scripture that used to be all over, if preachers could come around and say, Jesus says, all of you who have ever had the burden, come unto me, I'll give you rest. But it did seem like I was resting. It did seem like I had really arrived at the meaning of that scripture. But I, so I kept on searching out what could be extra that I've not discovered yet. What could be extra that I've not come in contact with? And so as life kept on wandering around for what would be the truth, that's actually when I got into another person who seemingly looked like had something better, but I realized later that it was just a brand, but he was still into the same legalistic movement. But he had just brought it so well that you couldn't easily tell that it was legalism. So. I'm one of those people that actually slept on one side of my lips for over three days, naked in my room, and all that I was praying for, God, I want you to come out for me and I want to see you. Now, when I reflect back on all these practices and the days we spent without eating, like 40 days, you don't eat anything, you don't drink anything, simply because you want to touch the heart of God. Literally, do we know that the heart of God for humanity was already touched in Christ? So that we never needed to do something to really touch his heart. He was already so persuaded of us. He was already in love with us. But our ignorance really did us so bad. So that's the reason as to why when we kept it all this performance, I remember one day I walked into church and the preacher who was, be, who was invited, oh, I'm also a guest preacher today. <laughs> so he was a guest preacher like me tonight. And this gentleman was like, if you really want to get a blessing from God, you must run here with your seed. I was so, so much poor that I really tried, had nothing on me. 
And I began to cry down in my seat and said, God, every time you want to do something, you never give me an opportunity. You look out for those who can do. And today, I really want a blessing, but I have nothing. Can't you see my heart and just be merciful and help me out? And the preacher was like, if you don't have anything, please don't bother to come around because God is only looking out for a few people in this auditorium. <laughs> and so it sounded like it was so real, but only to know these days that it was a manipulation. Eh? So it was like, literally, I faced it all rough. And I really thought like, if really God is love, then there is something that must have been missed out. And that's when actually I got introduced to some few ministries that seemingly had a glimpse of what grace is all about. But they could not really understand. I remember getting into my first Bible college course, which was a diploma. And uh, after this course of two years, I realized that what we had learned in the Bible school was not what the Bible was reflecting. Every time I could sit with my Bible, I saw something which is totally different from what I was experiencing and seeing other potage. I remember going to my dad, my biological father, and I told him that, you know what, it doesn't seem like what we are getting from this Bible school is matching with what the Bible teaches. And every time I could share it with then my pastor, all that he could see in me was I have spirits which are diverting me from the realities. And so time to time he was like, these demons are going to be affecting you. They will affect you forever because you are diverting from the principles. They are pillars of the church that you cannot break. And so, but I was not really contented with uh, every word that come, came out of his mouth because I didn't see consistency in what the scriptures was pointing out. So one day I had an encounter with God as I was reading through my Bible and this had to do with the grace of God. And that's when I began to look at everything that it's all about his grace. It's not about his, well, our performance, but it's all about what he has done for humanity. You know, God loves us so much that he prepared for our existence. We did not just happen accidentally, but when we come to be, we think that we are going to make our being here comfortable by our performance. Literally, do we know that actually God preordained our being in this place in a comfortable zone? But just because we have believed in deception for so many years, we have been in church, we have sung songs, we have prayed, we have had gatherings, we have made outreach, but I'm not sorry to declare that the church of Christ all over the world, not just South Africa, not just Uganda, but all over the world, we believed a deception. And we have carried on deception for a long period of time, actually generations which has indulged people into believing that what they can do is what can make them to become what they want to be. And literally that's a lie. It's what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ that has qualified us into what God has always dreamt about. Can you imagine that we have always been the dream of God? And God is seeing us alive. God is seeing us today. He's seeing his dream has come alive. 
But we literally see that in so many people's lives. We don't even experience that in so many gatherings where some people even can come like where we have seen today and they can raise up their hands and you can hear some of the words like, God, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And then you ask yourself, if a child is not worthy to be in the daddy's sight, then who will ever be worthy to be before his father? So we got to really awaken our minds to the realities as the body of Christ. That's the reason as to why when I got this encounter with the grace message, I began to study and I really looked into so many things. And my point of contact with Pastor Bati was when it came to tithe. He was the first person for all the years I had taught. For all the years I'd done Bible school, I had been in church, I've been doing ministry, but I had never received any single man who was so pure in his message when it came to tithe like Pastor Barty. So when I got this book from my mom, Anne, just near looking at the title, I simply said, I agree with whatever is in there. Before even I read the book, I was already in agreement with the title that Jesus is indeed the tithe. Now, that's one of the areas where the church got it wrong. Because we thought that the church is supposed to be a business. It's not a business. It's a connection point of a family. This is where a family comes together to enjoy each other with the different giftings that God has embraced with us. Now, when we came to that, from that moment, then I began to look into, then I began to follow Pastor Barty, and I realized that I've got a man who believes what I believe. And that's why my life today, I would say it's purely all by the grace of God. <clears throat> For years of preaching the grace of God, I've been rejected. I've been chased out of churches. I've been cut off from wonderful friends, but I have not been moved. Actually, I'll be honest with you, it gives me a joy to push me out of your place simply because I've taught you the truth. That will warm up my heart. And that's the reason that's why I always refer to Acts chapter number 20, verse 24, where Paul says that my life is not dear unto me. But one thing I count very important is to testify of the grace of God. That's all that I count most important in my life. And today I bring you a simple message, very simple. And the message I want to share with you is the good news. That's all I want to share with you, the good news. Now, when we look at the Greek, it comes out with a word called wanglion. And this is many times paraphrased as news which is too good to be true. That when I listen to this news, what is going to happen? My heart will skip. That, hmm, can that be true? Now, that is what the gospel is all about. From any average mindset, this is how you can tell. That the moment you listen to somebody, the question is, Whatever you are listening, is it too good that you are literally even tempted to actually say it cannot be true? If you, what you are listening to brings that aspect of goodness in it, of reflection of the goodness of God, then what you are listening to is what we call the good news. Many times we have preached so many sermons, 
branded them so well as the gospel. But in spite of the so many Christian products with such a brand, if anything called law still remains in any area of your preaching, you haven't preached the gospel yet, brother or sister. That's why Paul says that, you know, if, when it comes to the gospel, we don't have many. The gospel is one. You cannot say that this is the gospel of my heart. Then Pastor Bart has another gospel. Then Pastor Peter has another gospel. The gospel is one. And if it's gospel, it is good news. Now, before I even go any further, something that is very important when I'm dispensing of this to me is, we have our Bibles, and we have always gone to churches or conferences, seminars, and we have listened to somebody talk about, I want to talk to you about the Word of God. And then, when some, I remember sometime I was on my TV, and then uh, somebody asked, let everyone show me your, the Word of God. And then, of course, everyone lifted up his Bible. Now, I want to make something very important because it will be helpful for where I'm heading. That as a church, it's important for us to draw a difference between the Bible, call it the scriptures, and the word of God. Without drawing the difference of the two, we are going to still fall into victims of deception. Many of us have held the Bibles, we have held the scriptures, and we thought that was the word of God. But I prefer to make a little correction for some of us who might have thought so. That when it comes to the word of God, remember what John says, John 1, 1. He says, in the beginning, there was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I give, I'll give you, even if it's a million rands, I'll give it to you. If you can give me one single Bible version that says, in the beginning there was the scripture, and the scripture was with God, and the scripture was God. I'll give you a million rand for that. There is literally no Bible version that says that. But all the Bible versions say, in the beginning there was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God himself. What does that mean? When Jesus showed up in the flesh, referring to himself, this is what he says. All scripture talk about me. So all scriptures talk about Jesus. Who is Jesus? John 1.14 says, he became flesh, the world among us. And what did we see? The only one begotten of the Father. So seeing the only one begotten of the Father, who is Jesus Christ, who is now the Word, it brings some information to our minds. And I want to reduce it down for the sake of the time to this. That when we look at scriptures, the word scripture, many of us came into contact with it for the first time in a Christian circle. When somebody was talking about the Bible. So literally every time you hear the word scripture, your mind will go Bible. But I want to be honest with you. Let's go English and grammar. The word scripture simply means something that is written. It can be written by anybody. Anything that is written is scripture. You, some of you are taking notes in your, Bible, in your books right now. Those are scriptures. But now the, the mind is going to actually fight. No, no, no. This is my writing. So it's scripture. That's exactly what you are saying. Anything you have written is called what? 
scripture. But what makes the difference between what you are writing and what we got in the Bible is what we got in the Bible are holy scriptures because they were inspired in their being written. God himself is the author of what is being written by Peter, by Paul, and the rest of the writers that we see in that Bible. That's the reason as to why when we look at the scriptures, these are written materials which God has inspired to carry a message to us as humanity. So what does that imply? That the message the scriptures carry is what we call the word of God. So it's very easy for you to have all the scriptures. You can quote them from Genesis to Revelation, but you miss the message. Because the message is what is going to make a difference in your life. It is not the scriptures that will make the difference. It is the message that they carry that will make a difference. Some of us are theological students. But I remember my back then in my high school, I studied uh, religious education. When I came to HSC, I did some divinity and so forth and so on. But whenever they are teaching us divinity, they could quote from Bible passages. And they could give us everything from the Bible passages. But those teachings never made a difference in our lives. Because the scriptures are not the ones that carry the power. It is the word of God which is the message in the scriptures that carry the power that can impact and influence your heart and cause a change. That is the reason as to why people can go to church every Sunday. But we are not seeing fruits in their lives. Because this fruiting is going to come only when the true message meets your heart. It will cause you to be what it says about. It will not even literally try to work it out. No, this is effortless. This is God at work through you. That the moment you listen to that message, it will make a difference. It will influence your heart and it will give it a new direction as our church. That is the reason as to why when we are listening, I remember many of us have been in contact with Romans chapter number 10 and verses 17, where the Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. When you look up that in the Greek, it says that faith has its source from the message, and the message is Christ. Now, if the message is Christ, what does that imply? The word of God is Christ. So when I'm going to experience any change in my life, I've got to listen to only Christ. No wonder Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, and the chapter is 4 and the verse is 5, that we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ. Now, because we preach Christ, who is Christ? Christ is the message we preach. Who is the message? The word of God. The moment you listen to the message, and this message is Christ, guess what? What you have listened to, it will create the faith you need inside of you. We don't have to do something to have the faith. No, the message you listen to will automatically born or birth that faith within you. And you find yourself you are in love with God without anybody telling you, love God. You find yourself generous, not without anybody telling you, be generous. Why? The message you had, had an influence in your heart, and it caused your heart to respond to it positively. 
That's the reason as to why it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, who is Jesus Christ. Now, the moment Jesus Christ is preached unto us, that is the message. So what was I trying to say? That we got our Bibles. It's very important to have our Bibles because those scriptures help us to get the word of God. But inside those scriptures, be able to derive out the message because it's the message you'll get out of those scriptures that's going to make a difference. And then when you are in encounter, when you are in contact with this message, I tell you, this is what grace life is all about. Fruits will be backed by God himself. God will cause the fruiting in our life. I remember that Galatians chapter number 5, the verse is 22. You can even begin it from 21 and downwards. It talks about the fruits of the spirit. And I've never seen any tree struggling to bring out fruits. And I've never seen any tree being the beneficiary of its fruits. The moment a mango tree breaks, uh, hangs out with some mangoes, we the human beings, we begin to check which is ready for us. It's not the tree that will tell which is ready for it to consume it. No, this is how God does it. Because of the spirit of God present within us, we shall fruit without any of our effort. Can you imagine that some people today have even made resting? It's a beautiful thing to rest in Jesus Christ. But some of us have even taken it to a level whereby it is works. Somebody says, rest in God, rest in God. Now, that's not how resting in God comes. The moment you receive the pure message of the grace of God, your heart will be at rest without anybody telling you, rest. Because you'll automatically see the solution. So it's, we've got to really put out anything in our lives that would be a sense of works. Because the moment any works, any legalistic kind of a stuff is sensed and can be observed within what we believe, then we haven't believed the pure message yet. That's the reason as to why it's important that what is dispensed of as church and what is dispensed of as we, the ministers of God, it's the pure grace of God. That's why, actually, I love the way Paul puts it in Acts chapter number 20 and the verse 32. He says, the, the message of the grace of God builds. A life will only be built if it's listening to the grace of God. Now, there are two aspects that I want to really bring out to you in the name of the good news. The first one is the love of God for each one of us. Now, many times we have heard people say, God loves us, God has loved us, and so forth and so on. But can you imagine that when we join church, the language changes in most places. When we are out there doing every rubbish thing, God loves us, he wants to win us into the church. When we come in, Mm, now God is about to beat you. Now God is about to do this. God is about to destroy you. You have got to be much careful. You have got to be ABCDFG. Now you wonder where is the love that he actually showed me before I came in. I would think that now that I'm in, I'm even in a much more better position than where I was. But it seems like I actually left the flamping and now I am in fire itself. Now, this is where we need to make some corrections when it comes to the love of God. And I want to put it this way, that God loved you and me before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 talks about. If God loved you and me before the foundation of the world, what does that depict for us? Simple. 
it shows that there is nothing good or bad we can do that can change his heart. Because he directed his love towards us before a good or a bad was done by us. And this was how he demonstrated it. By giving us his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That's what first John chapter 4, the verses 9. He says, God demonstrated how much he loves us by giving us his only begotten son. What does that imply? If look at a husband and a wife. If a man found a lady that he wants to really marry and be with for the rest of his life, this man will fall in love in his heart with this lady. But there will be a time when the man will communicate what is filled up in his heart for this lady. But before he communicates it, he's already in love. He is already interested. He's already so much fond of this lady. But there is a moment when he communicates it and says, look, I've always watched you and this is what my heart is all about you. Now, the moment the man brings a flower or anything and presents it to the lady, at that moment is what we call a moment of demonstration. A moment of demonstration is not the moment of falling in love. Falling in love happened far much more earlier than the demonstration itself. So before God ever demonstrated that he loves us by giving us the begotten son, Jesus Christ, he was already in love with us. So because he was already in love with us, what did he do? He was like, I need to make this known to them. Because I love them, but they don't know it. So I've got to show it to them. I've got to make it known to them. And that's why he demonstrated it through Jesus Christ. Something very important for me and for the church. When we look at the cross, many people will see punishment. Many people will see Jesus is being punished for our sins. But I want to differ from that by a careful study of the scriptures. From Genesis Revelation, that demonstration on the cross, it is very simple. It's a demonstration of God's love for humanity. Not a punishment. Two things cannot coexist. You cannot say, I have forgiven your sins, but I'll punish them, that is to your friend. I'll punish your friend for you, but for you I've forgiven you. This is the reality. Let me make it much more simpler. I want to sound so simple at this point. When somebody says we have been forgiven, because literally we all believe that Jesus has forgiven our sins. We have been forgiven. His mercy and his grace is so sufficient for us. His forgiveness is all that we dwell in. Perfect. That's wonderful. But at the same time, we corrupt our beliefs with he has been punished for our sins. If I had a long time, I would even take you through the generations at which point such a wrong teaching craved into the church. Because it has its history also. But this is what you could do as an average Christian. That because God loved us, where there is love, forgiveness means you let go of anything done wrong by another person without any interest of resentment. You are not interested in punishing anybody, anybody for what you have said you are forgiven. So if God says he has forgiven us, then he cannot turn around and say, but I must punish Jesus for you. 
That means we are not forgiven. Jesus has actually tried dinner for us. Now, this is where we need to get it much more clearer. That God says we have been forgiven. First John chapter 2 verse 12. We have been forgiven all our sins on the account of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? No one, not even Jesus, has been punished. So what if, but we see Jesus die on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was a demonstration that God loves you so much that is even willing to take up death for your sake. Simple example. Imagine me and you, we are walking down on the streets of Cape Town. And a speeding car comes just against us. And I see that if I don't push you away, it's going to knock you down and you die on the spot. But I love you so much that I don't want to see you dead. I push you away and that speeding car knocks me down and I'm dead. Simple question for understanding purposes. When I die by pushing you away from a speeding car and you survive, was that a punishment to me? I'll come again for everybody to pick it. We are walking down on the streets of Cape Town and the speeding car comes so fast and in order to save you because it's literally facing you more than me, I push you away and this speeding car in the process because you have gone away, then it knocks me down. Is the knocking down and I even die, is that a punishment to me? It is not. It is a demonstration that I love you so much that I'd rather die but for you live. That's what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He willingly took it up to demonstrate that let the speeding car knock me down, but you stay because I have loved you. I love you to that extent. That's how much God loves us. It's not a punishment. So when we look at the love that is so much rich like that from our God, this is the only scripture that I've always found so misunderstood by so many people. The Bible says in First John, the chapter is 4 and the verse is 8, that God is love. What does that mean? He will never do anything outside love because love finds its definition in him. Love finds its source in him that everything he does, he does it in love. Coming up with an idea of creating man, it was out of his love. No one forced him to. That is the reason as to why many of us have been deceived to think that if Adam had not actually done the wrong thing he did, literally maybe Jesus wouldn't have showed up. I want to differ from you if that's what you believe. Even if Adam had not sinned, Jesus was still going to show up. It wasn't about what Adam had done. Jesus was not a plan B of God. Jesus has always been the plan A of God. And that's why Ephesians chapter 1, the verses 5, he says, He chose us in Christ. So we are chosen in Christ, not in Adam. And when were we chosen in Christ? We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? We have always been of God. 
Our origin is God. That's why when somebody wants to know what is your genesis, where do you come from? As human beings, we come from God. So being here does not mean that we have our source from our biological parents. Our source is from God. God is the designer, is the architect of our lives. He's the one who came up with the concept of our being. And he's so happy with the concept he came up with. He's happy to call us his human beings. He's happy to see us humans as we are. Because that's what he gave birth to. Remember, many of us have always had a scripture that says, Jesus came to seek and save what was lost. Have you heard about that before? Jesus came to seek and save what was lost. This is one thing that you should learn from that scripture. You can never have anything lost unless it belongs. The moment we say we were lost, it means we belonged. And where did we belong? We belonged to God. So Jesus came to restore our belonging. That our minds may be awakened to know that we are not of ourselves, but we are of him. And we originate from there. That's the reason why if you remember the story when Jesus asked uh, the disciples and the mountains who are present, that who do people call me? Everyone gave his own answer. They call you John the Baptist and so forth. And then Peter says, you are Christ. And guess what? This was the word that actually Jesus gives out to Peter. And says, Peter, you are a rock. When you look at that word from Greek, it means a small particle of a rock. Now, a small particle of a rock, what does that mean? We all know from generation to generation, Jesus is the rock of ages. So what was he telling him? He was telling him, look, you are coming from the same rock I am. He was simply demonstrating the origin of man. Because if you got some rice, I don't know what they eat mostly here, but in Kampala we enjoy some rice. But if you got a small rock, just a small particle, and mix it up with rice, and you boil that rice for 10 hours, the rice will boil up, but the rock will not. The moment you test it, it will not be ready. And even if you cook it for a thousand years, the rock can never be ready for eating. You get what I'm talking about? So what does that mean? It is demonstrating that if Peter is a small rock, all the ingredients that make up the ancient rock, they are the same ingredients that make up this small rock. That's why we are not afraid to see ourselves the way God sees us. Because that's the good news. That's why he looks at us and says, look, this is the news I have for you. I love you so much. And beyond that, I have demonstrated it. How has he demonstrated it? By giving us the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. I want to finish up with this. We have looked at scripture called John chapter number 3 and the verse is 16. Many times it has become the theme of the church generation to generation. And the Bible says that God so loved the world. That's amazing. That he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life or have eternal life. Two things are key for me there. One is eternal life. Two, the begotten son. Now, this is just in the simplest way. If it was in a Bible school, we could elaborate it and make it much more clear than what I could do now. 
But look, listen to it, you'll get it properly. When the Bible says that God gave us the only begotten son, we got to draw our attention at the word begotten. When you look up this word begotten from the Greek, it means a regeneration. Something that has been rebirthed. Something that has been reborn. Something that has come back to life. Now, what does that mean for the church? When the Bible says we have been given the only begotten son, whom is God referring to? He is referring to the resurrected Christ. Now, you are, you are going to get it, don't worry. I'm going to explain better. Now, many times, that's not what the church perceived. The church perceived the born Jesus in a manger. That's why baby Jesus are the songs. But what God was referring to was not that. There is an importance of the incarnation of God into the flesh. That was an important stage. But when he says he has given us, he has not given us the Jesus born from the womb of Mary who is subject to death. Because this Jesus born from the womb of Mary who lived over 33 years and then died, that one was representing the dying humanity. And what God has given us is the begotten one, the non-dying humanity. That when you look at him, you can be hopeful that I can continue to live as man. That's why he says he is the begotten that he has given us. Not the born Jesus. Now, this is key. That's why the moment he says he has given us the begotten, what is the next thing he talks about? Internal life. Why? Because Jesus, the resurrected one, is the demonstration of how that life looks like. That when you get to know him, when you get to see him, you can tell how internal life can be felt like. Now this is key, before I mention what I want to mention next. That many have come to believe that why God created man was to worship him. I've had many great preachers say, one thing that we are going to do in this world and we shall also do in heaven is worshiping God. Because who were created to worship God? I want to defer. We were not created to worship God. We were created to share the life of God. God wanted an object that would share into his life. And that object could feel like how it feels to be God himself. Now, when two people begin to relate, a husband and a wife, the first important part of it is themselves. But as they continue in their relationship, there will be byproducts. A byproduct is not the reason for their union. You don't marry to get someone to clean your house. Because if you needed someone to clean your house, there are so many maids you can hire. You don't marry to get someone to wash your clothes. We have a lot of cleaners around that can do that job even better than your wife. 
So the wrong reasons for marriage is actually a contributor to the breaking of the marriages. God did not fall in love because he wanted us to do something for him. We are not servants. We are children. We are children in the home. When you have your little child at home, everything they do is a delight for you. But you don't pay them because they are not on a wage basis. They are not on a payroll in your home. Whatever they do is just a mere contribution of their participation in the family affairs. So when it comes to us and God, we are not here as people that God has created to serve him. But by default, because his desires have been born in us, we find ourselves in Cape Town preaching the good news. We don't preach to be paid. No, you don't share with your neighbor the good news because you want God to do something for you. Not at all. His affair have become your affair. His desires have been born in you. So what he desires is what you desire. You literally speak out to everybody about Jesus without even knowing that you are doing that. Now, this is the reason as to why when it comes to what I'm talking about, that we are not created by God to worship him or to do ABCDFG. As much as by default we do that, this is the reality of the matter. That the moment God looked at himself, how good he was, he wanted to replicate himself in another object. In other words, he wanted to mirror himself, to see himself in another object that is exactly the way he is. That's the reason as to why before anything was, the Bible says, God promised eternal life. That is Titus chapter number 1 and the verses 1 to 2. He says God promised eternal life before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Before Adam was in place. Before Adam sinned, God has promised eternal life. So it cannot be the antidote of sin. This is God's dream. Before even man has ever done anything wrong, God is dreaming of having another object with eternal life. Because literally it was only God who could live eternally. Now, when he came up with the concept of man, man has a, a dying concept or a dying part of him, which is called the body. Now, this dying body, every time, whether you like it or not, the moment you are into this world, one minute, your body begins to die. That's why we die in phases or in parts. You can find that the person who was able to run 100 meters in one hour, you are now running them in 10 hours. The body is dying now, eh? person who was able to see very far, you cannot see very far, you need to something to help you to see far. The body is going, brother. The person who could wave very fast now, you cannot wave very fast because the, the moment you begin to wave it very fast, the bones say, please take it slow. <laughs> but now, what is our hope in such a dying world? Our hope in that dying world is the resurrected Christ. That the moment we see him, what is God saying? As I rise him from the dead, I'll rise you, give you the same body that cannot die, so we can live with the hope. And what is that hope? That as much as my body can die, I have a hope for immortality. One day I'll put on what cannot die. That's all the core of the gospel we preach. That's the good news. That in a dying world, we have a hope of not dying. And this hope has been birthed in us by what? The resurrected Christ. That is the reason as to why when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
The verses 12 of down to 14, Paul says that this is the reality of the matter. If Christ never rose, then nobody will rise. Then he goes on to say that if there is no resurrection, then our faith is in vain. And what we are preaching is empty. What gives substance to the preaching? What gives substance to the gospel? What gives substance to what we believe is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go back and check Romans chapter number 10. The verse is 9 to 10. Especially verse 10, he says that, actually from verse nine, number 9, he says, when we believe that he was raised from the dead, we shall be saved. So literally, what are we believing? We are believing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when he talks about the begotten son, whom is he referring to? The one who is resurrected. Somebody will say, but Gerard, that cannot be true. I'll give you two scriptures to clarify myself. Acts chapter number 13, the verse is 33. The Bible says that on this day have I begotten you. On this day have I begotten you. When he did what? When he rose him from the dead. That's repeated even in Psalms number 2. Now, the day Jesus was raised from the dead, listen to this and grasp it properly. The day Jesus was raised from the dead, this is when God declared him his begotten son. What does that mean? The son of God is the resurrected Christ. Let's make it simpler for everybody to understand it. When you look at Romans chapter number 8, verse 29, it says he is the firstborn from among the dead. The firstborn. What does it refer to? It's referring to the resurrected Christ. So what should you be believing into? You should be believing into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that brings the good news. That brings the gospel clear for everybody. As if that is not enough. When you look at Romans, it's one of my favorite. Romans chapter number 2 and the verse is 4. Now, here, I wish I could read it. I think this one, let me just read it. Because I really want to read this one out. And I shall malize it off. Oh, should be finishing in the name of Jesus. Oh, okay. All right, Romans chapter number two, sorry about that. Okay, he says, Oh, deepest thou the riches of his goodness and the forbearance and the long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance. So, the more we see how good God is, the more we shall change our hearts. Because repentance simply means a change of direction. And this is how you can see the goodness of God. How? Look at Romans chapter number 1. Romans chapter number 1. And the verse will be still around 3 to 4. Go back. 1, 3 to 4. It says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Now we're looking at the goodness of God. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David. Now we all know David died and even was buried. So he's having that seed in him. That's why he looked at the Jesus before the resurrection and Jesus after the resurrection. So he has given us the begotten one who is the resurrected one. Are we together? Then he goes here and says, who was made of the seed of Adam, sorry, David, according to the what? To the flesh. According to the what? To the flesh is the seed of David. According to the flesh, if you have not yet grasped it, according to the flesh, you are a seed of your parents. 
Are we together? Now he goes down to verse number four. This is the message now. And declared to be the son of God with the power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So he's declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. The moment we look at Jesus raised from the dead, we are looking at the proof of what we believe. We are looking at the proof of our hope. That is the reason as to why First Timothy chapter 1 and the verses 1, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our hope. What is hope? When you look up go hope from uh, the Greek, it simply means a confident expectation of God. That if Jesus is our hope, even with these dying bodies, we have a confident expectation of the nine dying bodies. That's the reason as to why the Bible says that if you believe that he was raised from the dead, what have you done? Romans chapter number 4, the verse is 25. He says he was given up to death for our sin's sake. And he was raised from the dead for our justification. The moment you believe that Jesus is risen and you believe in his resurrection, you are just before God. And just means you are what God intended you to be. Just as he planned it to be is what has come out for him. Now, that is the reason as to why when we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the climax of what we call the true message. So two things very important for everybody that you should be persuaded, your heart should come to a position where it is fully persuaded by the love of God. That God loves me so much, he has pre-planned my existence, he has pre-planned everything for me to the extent that if I had any doubt he has come out to actually demonstrate that what I planned for you, it is true. And if you doubt it, I have a, an example for you to look at. And that is Jesus Christ, the risen Christ. That's why Jesus is not just an example for us, but he's an example of us. That when we see him, remember what Romans chapter number 8 talks about. That he actually, from verse 29 down to 31, he says that he desired that we should be conformed to the image of his son. What is the image of his son that we are conformed to? The resurrected Christ. That's the image we are conformed to. That when we look at him, it's like if uh, somebody got an iPhone 7, even if we are 10,000 people with iPhone 7, we have the same thing. Same future, same phone, and same everything. But the first iPhone, which is the blueprint, it was one and it's not with anybody. It's in California. That's why they keep it. But from that blueprint, we have a replication of all iPhone 7 all over the world. That when you get to see an iPhone 7 in South Africa, when you go and meet it in America, it will be the same thing. What does that mean? Jesus is the blueprint. And we are exact as he is. That's why we are not afraid to say as he is, so are we in this world. And that's what gives us hope that this Jesus who is exactly like us, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he will never die again. When we look at that kind of a life, we say, okay, we are living, the bodies will die, but we shall be raised and we shall continue to live. That's our hope. That's the good news. That's why nothing should stress your life. Nothing should worry you. 
Never be anxious for anything. The true definition of who you are is Christ, not your car. Your clothes don't define you. Your properties don't define you. Nothing can ever define your life. It's just the resurrected Christ who defines you. His value is your value. That's the reason that's why when you look at this Jesus Christ, this is what you should know. That as the Father has loved the Son, Jesus Christ, so as he loved us. You cannot love your son so dearly and you want to kill them. It is not true. That's why Jesus says, no, the father never killed me. I gave up my life willingly for the sake of you people. It's a willing job. He has just willingly done it. That's why he says that if you struggle with trusting God, let me be a permanent proof in your life. The moment you reflect on my resurrection, then you'll know God is true. The moment you reflect on my resurrection, then you'll know God is faithful. The moment you see me rose from the dead, I am the perfect proof that whatever God promised, never forget 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all the promises of God have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. How have they been fulfilled? What is the receipt of that fulfillment? Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why with the resurrected Christ, we have hope to face anything in our lives. We can live confidently. We can live cheerfully. We can live with peace without any form of works to try to be what God has declared us to be already. God has declared us blessed, but remember, as I close off, two things. One, we have what we call circumstances in our lives. We have what we call situations in our lives. These ones will keep on varying from time to time. Time to time, your situation will vary. Your circumstances will change. But we have what we call your position in God. Your position in Christ is who you are in Christ. That is your permanent status. It will never change. Even when your circumstances change, who you are in Christ will never change. In Christ you are blessed. In Christ you are favored. In Christ you are all that God ever dreamed about. Regardless of what is happening in your life around. You are joyful. You are peaceful. You are everything. And do not even try to struggle to bring that forth. Allow God himself to serve you by bringing those fruits out in your life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. 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 Yeah.